So I know last week we were really getting into like the DNA talk and I probably left the DNA talk with all this new information and immediately went to go watch CSI. <laughs> How'd that so work sorry out? Sorry about that. I just yelled at the TV the whole time. I was like, they're lying. All of it's lies. It's all lies. <laughs> None yeah. of you guys are doing this right. It's okay though. Cause then like, you know, still enjoyed the show, but yeah, it is interesting to go back and watch that sort of business. After I've talked to you, I've like you said, you ruined my like mm-hmm. fifth grade childhood experience, with my taste buds. And now you've ruined my true crime shows. I hope you're happy with yourself. <laughs> I hope you're satisfied. I'll be happy because it means you learned something. Today, you're going to take away my daytime TV. No, it's perfectly accurate that they can tell who the father is. The drama associated therewith is a... Uh... That's up for debate. Wonderful and amazing and makes me <laughs> feel so much better about myself. You know, I did have a student ask me one time, but how do they know who the mother is? And then I had to remind them that um, in Louisiana, I'm not allowed to have any sort of uh, talk about sex or sexual education that's not based on abstinence. So that's on their parents. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> you know who the mom that, is. That individual is usually present. At the time. Yeah, like typically, <laughs> typically that person is present. Unless we have a changeling situation. And as far as I know, haven't had one of those in Louisiana. That's fair. Plus, our DNA tests don't pick up Faye DNA. So it would just be kind of a wash. Well, what good are you? I know. I'm sorry. Useless. <laughs> Useless. So, yes. Um, in order to get the show on the road, Erica's going to ruin daytime TV for all of us. And we're going to learn Ooh. about what paternity testing really is. Hey! As our... Like continuation part two. What are we calling this? Continuation part two? The sequels, I guess. <laughs> we are sequelizing. There we go. Sequelizing. <laughs> we always know part two is better than part one. The Godfather has shown us that. Also Jurassic Park, and I will die on that. I think Lost World is better than the original, and I don't care how many of you guys disagree with me. I like it better because I like Ian Malcolm. So whatever. So that being said, my name is Katie, and I am not a scientist. My name is Erica, and I am a scientist, and this, I will say as Katie takes a drink, is Southern Science. <laughs> <laughs> this is Southern Science? Uh, look, I drank very quickly, okay? It was fun. <laughs> this is Southern Science, guys. Okay, hit me. What we got? Okay, so actually today we will cover three different types of DNA testing. So we've already covered the basics of what DNA is, and then forensic DNA testing, which... Yes. I feel like a lot of people, it's going to be the first thing that they think of when you hear DNA testing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, true crime. But the other types we're going to talk about, hopefully today we'll get to all three, is paternity testing, which is quite similar to the forensic DNA testing that we talked about last week. So that'll be a little bit of a refresher. And then ancestry testing and also the use of DNA in medical screens, particularly commercial medical testing such as 23andMe. Okay, I had no idea that was even a thing. Super excited. All I know is the ancestry testing, so that's super cool. Okay, so we'll start with the paternity testing. Katie, do you still have the PowerPoint that I sent you? Yes, I do, and I will pull it up right now. Hey, got it up and going. Of course, I still have the PowerPoint. (laughs) And just like last time, I will post my slides on Facebook. All right, so I'm on the paternity DNA testing screen. Yes. I'm telling you, as someone who at 18 years old, discover jerry springer because i finally got a tv in my bedroom once i went to college um Mm -hmm. paternity testing basically like defined my college experience i was just like this is the (laughs) most interesting thing love me a good jerry springer love me a maury was forever crushed when i figured out most of it was staged 
but yeah, you know, whatever. You, you'll probably enjoy the next slide, slide 12, because it's just a bunch of gifts of like you are or are not the father. Yes. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Super into it. <laughs> Love it. You are not so- the father. <laughs> yeah, no, this was my childhood. <laughs> okay. So yes, let's do it. So like forensic testing is the comparison of a known DNA profile to a unknown DNA profile. This is comparing a individual's DNA to a suspected relative's DNA. And again, for paternity testing, this is usually to the father. In some cases, you may have to do like grandfather or male relative on the father's side. That Mm -hmm. generally will work because of the type of testing that this is. When we talked before about how these genes are inherited, like at every area of your genome that DNA testing looks at, you have two copies. You know, so like I said, this this encyclopedia set of how to make a human, you've got a duplicate of every volume. Mm-hmm. And they're not completely identical. They can say generally have the same instructions, but some of the words may be different. And that's what makes, you know, why your parents don't look the same. And then the different versions that you get make you your own unique individual. And so this actually makes it very easy to fill in the blank if you have a child with one profile and you know what the mother's profile is, then you know what the father's is for at least one of the copies that that the father has. So you can see in this example that I gave you on slide 13, um, you can have... That's not the father. Dun, dun, dun. You are not the father. So if at this... Area. So we remember last week we were talking about this type of testing measuring the number of repeated segments that you have mm-hmm. in a given area on your chromosomes. So if the child has like one copy that's 23 repeats and one copy that's 24 repeats, and then the mother had a 22 repeats and a 24 repeats. So you know that Dad the child- has 23. Right. The child got their 24 from the mom so that the, the father has to be the source of the 23. Right. In the picture that I've shown Katie, the father, the alleged father had a 21 and a 25, so they could not be the source of the 23, a.k.a. not the father. You are not the father. And that's called autosomal testing. Yes. So that means you're testing one of the non-sex chromosomes. You're not testing an X or a Y. Got you. Okay. And that's the kind of testing that we talked about last week. It's across the other 22 chromosomes that aren't the uh, sex chromosomes. So. This works, autosomal testing works for a child of any gender. Okay. There's an additional form of testing that you can do for males. Um, But while we're still on this autosomal testing, I did want to say, so you're still looking at um, lots of areas on the genome, you know, for this, for 16 different areas. Because of the fact that mutations can occur, you can allow some mismatches here because you're not looking at like an adult human leaving, you know, blood at, at a scene. And so, you know, that that blood matches the blood that they currently have in their body. Mm-hmm. Uh, mutations can occur during the creation of sperm or eggs. Sure. And if so, the mutation that that sperm has will be the only version that the child has. And so that's how new numbers of mutations occur. But then that child will have that new number throughout all of their cells. Um, And then you would think like, oh, well, they, you know, they're one repeat short, so it can't be the father. Well, I mean, a certain amount of mutation is going to happen naturally. Mm -hmm. So generally when you're doing paternity testing, you factor in the fact that there can be a few mismatches. It's a stats game. But if you've got like, right. But if you've got more than three, then like that's not 
that's not a we've got a high mutation rate that's a you're not the father <laughs> right yeah like if it's one okay so you had a mutation but if it's like it like i'm looking at the one you showed me that's not correct i'm also looking at the next slide and i'm just gonna say you're definitely related to your parents <laughs> yes you have this hanging in your house don't you i recognize this my parents do that's right i knew i recognized it somewhere very cool okay so whenever I was learning to generate DNA profiles, I had to practice with some obviously non-crime scene samples. Oh, obviously. So I did like mine, coworkers, friends and family, things like that. So sure. I needed to be able to get DNA profiles in a way that wasn't, you know, if I messed those up, it wasn't going to affect any cases. So I just needed sure. to practice. So I had... I use that as an opportunity to find out what the forensic profiles of my family members were. And as an anniversary present for my parents, drew those profiles, the, the capillary electrophoresis readouts. Uh, I okay, kind of turned that's into cool. a piece of art. I didn't put any numbers associated with the art, so I assume it's still fairly anonymous. Aha! Uh -huh. uh, and I don't know if you can actually see on the picture that I sent you. I actually... My dad's is all in silver and my mom's is all in gold. And so I can't see that. Of, no. Okay. For each of us kids, I put whichever allele we got from mom or dad in those respective colors. Oh, okay. That's really cool, Erica. That's a cool gift. Well, I mean, as an anniversary present, if the, if the event the anniversary is celebrating hadn't happened, then none of those profiles would exist. So I figured yeah, and, like, and then you can like be like, you guys, hundred percent made two children, made three children together. Good job. Yes, I can prove it. We've got, <laughs> I can we've got the, the stats to prove it. Yes, congratulations. And I guess, although when I first made this, my mom's like, "What you trying to do? Get me in trouble?" Like, <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh my god, I love your mom. I will say that using family for practice samples did not always work out so well for my coworkers. Oh no. Oh. That's how you accidentally find out you're adopted or hey. that's how you accidentally find out that your father is not your father. Oh, that's not fun. Yeah. It's not great. Oh, sadness. Okay. Yeah. Not cool at all. Not fun. Although that's recently um, father's day was pretty recent and I did see a lot of recommendations that maybe you don't give someone ancestry.com paternity testing for yeah uh, <laughs> for father's yeah. day i feel that yeah. yep that's a, a risk that you know you take <laughs> yeah you're like well hope everyone's been really honest yeah <laughs> i love it okay so with male children, you have the option of not doing just this autosomal testing that's like standard forensic testing. You can also look specifically at the Y chromosome. And the reason that you might want to do that is because the Y chromosome is only inherited from the father, the biological father. Right. And so, you know, how last week we were talking about that your genome isn't exactly the same as your parents because like there's some reshuffling that gets involved and so you may not yeah, they get don't copy the exact exact. same yeah yeah right. dna doesn't copy exactly i do remember that from last week because i remember that like threw me for a loop i'm like well how are you supposed to follow stuff and i was like jurassic park frog dna i remember that yep <laughs> okay that's what we took away from it was jurassic park <laughs> that's what i took away from it jurassic park frog dna it's not always an exact copy and sometimes stuff gets moved around and you have to fill in the blanks that's what yes. I took. But with with the recombination, like we were talking about last week, though, it's like your parents have all of that information. They just originally had it in two separate books. Mm -hmm. And then when those books got next to each other and you needed to make a copy of each of the pages, 
maybe you didn't put the pages back in the right binders. So yeah. the what you inherit is not the exact same as one full chromosome of your parents. Right, but they still have both of those. Right. It's just like not identical. Yeah. But with the Y chromosome, there's not another Y chromosome for it to shuffle with. Right. So there's you because you only have the X and then you have the Y. If you had two X's, you do get some, you, there's a possibility for recombination going on there. Mm-hmm. But for Y's, there's not that many genes on a Y chromosome anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> honestly. It's a very small chromosome. So it's inherited pretty directly. So a male child will generally have the same Y chromosomal profile as their father, as their paternal grandfather, as their paternal uncles, as their brothers. So that whole male family line will have identical or very, very similar in the event of mutations, YSTR profiles. So you couldn't necessarily prove that it's Brett Chapman's kid, but you could prove it was a Chapman kid. Yes. Yeah. You could do that. Yes. There are criminal cases when YSTR profiling is not useful because it's assault by your brother-in-law or, you know, something like that, that doesn't like you can't prove that the father of your child is, you know, your husband and not your brother-in-law. Yeah. But, so occasionally that happens and then, you know, don't, don't do those tests. It's right. Not important. Yeah. Like okay. it's not going to help. Yeah. This isn't a useful <laughs> But one. for the most part, YSTR testing is a very straightforward way to determine paternity of a male child. So it's also because there's less chance for like reshuffling on the Y chromosome. It is easier to chase, to trace lineage back a long time. So I'm looking at the thing you you sent me. Um, I'm looking. I'm, I need to zoom in. Hold on. Let me actually download the PowerPoint rather than just opening it on the email. Mm-hmm. Because I can kind of see what you're talking about. And I will say this is one of the things and I'm going to say this for anybody listening. Definitely try to listen to this podcast with Erica's uh, slideshow up in front of you. It's not. I guess you don't have to have it, but it actually is making it a lot easier to kind of follow along with what she's looking at because you do have kind of like a physical copy and you can kind of see, oh, that's what she means. That just means I'm not explaining it well enough. No, you're explaining it fine. I'm a visual person. And I feel like especially for a lot of like people like me who are very right-brained, having a picture is helpful. Even with the dye stuff, that's like, I remember that from that one podcast that we did about like dying. I learned so much because I could touch it and see it, you know? Yeah, I guess help. But you're explaining it fine. But some of these concepts, like I mean, you know, they're just it's fun to see it because you can like see where the lines line up, and you're like, "Hey, you're the father. I could read this and yes. pick the father. <laughs> I am smart." Yes, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the kid only gets the genes from two places, and you know, one of them. Yeah, like <laughs> then- you said, it's not necessarily the most difficult job, but it's a highly necessary job. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, super cool. Okay, that's really neat. Love it. And so with YSDR profiling, you're looking at um, like only 13 regions instead of 16, but otherwise it's pretty much exactly the same. But what I was trying to say before is because the Y chromosome doesn't recombine with another chromosome, uh, that profile remains relatively unchanged. It is easier to use that profile to do ancestry testing. So it was one of the earliest ways to look at lineage before what we'll talk about with the newer form of ancestry testing. Okay. With YSDR testing, it's easy to look at a male line over time because that that DNA, that profile changes so little compared to autosomal profiles. Okay. And before you get started, let me ask you a question just because this kind of threw me when you brought it up, but I was mm-hmm. going to wait till we got to the ancestry part mm-hmm. to ask this question. You said things like ancestry 
or things like 23andMe. And I guess like, I guess I just haven't done the research into this, but those are, I always assumed those were both ancestry tests. What's the difference? So 23andMe absolutely does do ancestry testing as well. If you look at ancestry.com or like familytree.com or something like that, or is it called my family tree, something like that, they don't also do medical testing. So I was using 23andMe more as an example of the commercial medical DNA tests. But they, well, that's cool. They look at the same kind of data. And so I'll go ahead and now uh, explain <laughs> what I mean by that. <laughs> so ancestry testing can kind of mean a couple different things. Uh, you can mean, you know, comparing multiple modern individuals to identify a common ancestor. Wow. Okay. Which is, again, a statistics game. Or you can be comparing an individual's DNA to profiles typical for a geographical region. And that second one is what most people think of as ancestry testing. But the first one, like I said, was used a little bit earlier, especially with wide DNA profiling. For example, for years and years and years, everyone heard the story that Thomas Jefferson had fathered children with some of his slaves or with one of his slaves in particular. Yeah. And I think there was kind of like, well, some people believe that some people who want to like uphold his image say like, no, that wouldn't be true. It's like, he wouldn't do that. But yeah, like, of course he would. But um, yeah, he definitely had a 14 year old locked up in his basement. Yeah. Hamilton lied to you. He had a 14 year old <laughs> locked up in his basement. He was not a fabulous man with a wig who sang who sang songs. <laughs> but using that, the style of, of paternity testing where you can relate modern individuals and see when was the last time they shared a common ancestor. That's how they were able to sh uh, show that, yes, he did indeed father children with one of his slaves because a man who claimed to be of the lineage of the woman, the slave in the the girl, the unwilling participant in the matter, the um, child, <laughs> yes, the unwilling child, someone who knew they were descended from her. They were able to use YSTR profiling to show that that person about 200 years ago shared an ancestor with someone who had documented that they were related to Thomas Jefferson through his known. Wow. His, his public family line. Wow. Okay. So, I did not know that. I guess I never thought into how they were able to prove that. Yeah. So that's one wow. way to do it. Okay. Yeah. I had never thought about that. I, I only thought about the first one, like how to like tie people to regions. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's super cool. Now I want to know who I'm related to. So you can do that, like I said, by comparison. Um, another thing that has been done with that kind of DNA testing, like the comparative testing, is one of the first groups that I gave this talk to was the Daughters of the American Revolution. And for membership in that group, you have to prove that you were related to an American patriot, as it were, someone who participated in the American Revolutionary War or who supported the war efforts, even if they weren't a soldier. So it's a lot of genealogy work that goes into that. Usually, you know, documentation, family Bibles, family records, looking at gravestones, looking at census records, all that kind of stuff. But um, about like a decade ago or so, the DAR started accepting YSTR DNA evidence as supplementary evidence for being related to an American patriot. So 
you couldn't at the time, I don't know the current rules, but you couldn't use that as your only proof of being related to someone. But if you had that as supplemental, like if maybe the rest of your evidence wasn't like super well documented, but you like you could show that you were related to someone who did have proven ancestry that y'all shared an ancestor about 200 years ago, then they would Mm -hmm. say like, okay, this is probably, you know, supplementary evidence of you being related to said soldier or whatever. So they use that kind of, of genealogical evidence as well. Okay. But what what most people think of is the more popular 23andMe, Ancestry.com, MyHeritage.com, Family Tree, that kind of thing. Lots of companies over the years have done this. And frankly, it's not just for humans. This kind of testing is available for cats and dogs and I'm sure other animals as well. Embark, which I'm totally going to do at some point with my dogs. I kind of want to do uh, the one for cats. is called Base Paws. Yes. Which is a great name. Baseballs is wonderful. So also embark. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because no one knows what my dogs are. I, I rescue. Mm-hmm. I rescue only. And people are like, I mean, she probably has some husky in her. And yeah. I'm like, I mean, I, I got I got nothing. You have a husky something, yeah, I'm, I'm, a beagle something, and a whippet and something. Then, <laughs> like. Yeah, some, it's like something in the like Io's kind of chunky now. She kind of lost the whippet look. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying, like, like, she's a little, she's a little chunk. She's, like she's 12. 12, yeah. You're allowed to be fat when you're 12. Yeah. You're allowed. Yeah. yeah. Just live but your no, life, yeah, girl. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Take two. And we're back. <laughs> Take two. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So if we do sound slightly different now, it is now two days later because I was having audio difficulties and. We just had to try again. So, Can I just say it was one of the funniest things that ever happened. I know that Erica was getting very frustrated because the sound thing was on her end. But what kept happening was that she either couldn't hear me or her audio would cut out completely. Like only one of us could talk at one time. And guys, I had the best time talking at Erica without <laughs> her being able to say anything. I sang like three songs. It was great. Lived my best life. Like played around on the PowerPoint at the greatest time. I could totally run this podcast <laughs> and be like, here's some science. Danny was trying to help me fix the audio because uh, he, he came in to bring me an alternate pair of headphones. We're like, is it because my mm. headphones died and the computer didn't want to talk to any other headphones? Like, what was the problem? And of course. So Danny was laughing at me because I kept trying to like test the audio and I was just going, Katie, Katie, <laughs> Katie, Katie, Katie. And I just did that for like, I don't know, five minutes straight, and Danny was just laughing at me so much. I could see the explicitives you would say every once in a while. Those were the those were the lips I could read. I was like, oh my God. I, I was like, and it's funny, guys, because Erica doesn't curse. That's not her thing. Like, like, you know, it's no big deal when I curse because like I have to put on like a filter before I do this podcast because like my favorite words are four letters, right? <laughs> So no one takes me seriously when I curse. But when Erica curses, you're like, oh, God, something terrible happened. And I could just see her mouth forming certain words. And I was like, <laughs> she's frustrated. I was like, this doesn't happen often. <laughs> and like the great best friend I am. I was laughing. Yeah. I couldn't hear Katie. And then I would like unplug my microphone because she couldn't hear me. And then I could hear her when my microphone wasn't plugged in. I was like, how does this make any sense whatsoever? Anyway. This isn't science. We're going to try again. This is why you're a scientist and not an engineer. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All 
right, so take two. Um, we were actually just getting started on Ancestry, which I was super excited about because this is the one I know the least about is like, like, you know, I know about the paternity testing and, and I, cause you know, I watch Maury and CSI. So I know a little bit about the forensics. And I remember when you worked in the crime lab, which was awesome, but I know very little about like ancestry.com, like 23andMe. So this was the part I was really excited about. See, this was actually fun when I first started researching this because I was so used to how the forensic testing and the paternity testing work. The ancestry testing is actually a different way of reading the DNA. You're not looking at these short tandem repeats anymore. You know, looking at how long the sentence is based on the number of repeated words. You're not even looking at DNA in that way anymore. What you're looking at for ancestry testing and for a lot of the 23andMe medical testing, basically it's misspellings. So what they're called is single nucleotide polymorphisms. And that just means it's one nucleotide, meaning one of the bases that's A's, T's, C's, or G's. And then polymorphism, meaning a different version of that. And usually the ones that Ancestry is looking at are ones that aren't encoding for any meaningful protein changes. Sometimes they are. And that's especially, you know, what the medical testing will look at. Nucleotides that a mutation in that region will tend to indicate a medical problem down the line. Shoot. Okay. For ancestry testing, they look more at hypervariable regions where your DNA is free to change over time, like not in an individual, but like you can have a mutation that gets passed on to your progeny and that progeny is still equally likely to survive because it's not something that reduces their fitness. Can you give me an example of that? Like a specific mutation you can think of based on like regional? So... Generally, like I said, they're they're kind of meaningless. Um, so it, I can't oh, really have. Oh, okay, um, I missed that part. Okay, it's like if you were saying Bob is wearing a gray shirt. The meaning of that sentence doesn't change whether or not you spell gray, G R A Y, or G R E Y. But you mm-hmm. can look at that differential spelling. You know, one's not better than the other because one's not you know dysfunctional. But you can track which people spell it with an A and which people spell it with an E. You know, so that's the way you can kind of start to follow these lineages. Okay, very cool. Okay, following that, yeah. Who spells gray with an E? <laughs> okay, so I'm a weird person. To me, gray and gray are different <laughs> because one's... Okay, so E is more of a European <laughs> spelling and A is more of an American okay. spelling. And you can kind of remember that, the A for American and E for English or European. English. To to me, gray with an A is a lighter color than gray with an E, which is a darker color. (laughs) And that's 100% in my head. But to me, they're different colors. You know what? That's probably because at some point Crayola was like, we can cash in on this and probably made crayons (laughs) and different versions of gray. Yeah. Yeah. We can sell more crayons if we use both spellings. Yes. Hey, there we go. I like it. Okay. (laughs) Very cool. Okay. I was just like, who spells it with an E? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Got you. Okay. Sorry for all you European listeners. I'm sure that like, you know, your spelling of gray is very valid and wonderful. And all your extra U's are optional. Helpful. Yes. (laughs) So the way that, for example, Ancestry.com uses these single nucleotide polymorphisms or, or differential spellings of the whole DNA is that they are looking throughout the entire genome at over 700,000 individual letters. 
And for them, the raw data looks like on this chromosome at this position, version one has an A, version two has a G. It's kind of like, I forget the name of that type of puzzle, one of those like cryptogram puzzles where you have to have a reference book and you say, okay, so I want in this encyclopedia set, I'm looking at volume two. I'm looking on the fifth page. I'm going to look in the third line and whatever the fifth letter is, that's like, you know, the letter for this puzzle. That's the way that Ancestry.com is is picking these individual letters that are known to be highly variable. Ah, okay. So... Like I said, instead of looking at repeat regions and just saying, how long is this sentence? They're looking for individual misspellings. It's one giant cryptogram. Yes. Okay. Very cool. And so they just kind of make a list of all of these regions, you know, that they're going to look for. And instead of a cryptogram, like spelling out a secret coded message, it spells out just, you know, a bunch of A's, T's, C's, and G's just in a list of 700,000 of them. And what they do with that is they have taken similar lists of those 700,000 letters from, quote, native populations all around the world. And for them, like, just because your family lives in a region doesn't mean that they're native to that region, obviously. Mm -hmm. So in order to be counted as part of the native population, you have to show that your family has been in that region, I think, for like 300 years. Different ancestry services will have probably different cutoffs of what qualifies as a native population. But you are supposed to have documentation that your family has lived in that region, either through census records or family Bibles or any other kind of like, you know, genealogical research that you can prove that your DNA is representative of that geographical region. And so those are the, the native reference populations that these companies build up. And so that's really the benefit of any of these different ancestry services. So ancestry.com or 23andMe or, or MyHeritage or Family Tree, those different ones. The reason that the big ones get popular and then stay popular is because the bigger reference population you have, the more accurate you can be in determining what is a native profile and then comparing modern people to those reference populations. At the time I was doing this presentation, I didn't look recently, but Ancestry had 26 different regions in their panel. And, oh, 23andMe had 153 different populations. So it's basically, it's just based on how many, uh, like how specific you wanted to get. Like, did you just want to say European? Did you just want to say like Eastern European versus Western? Or did you want to say like England versus France versus Spain versus Belgium versus, you know, and so all of the different, like how specific did you want to get or different ethnic groups within those regions, like an isolated, say Jewish population within, not just looking at it by region, but looking at it by like an ethnicity as well okay that's so cool though like I, and i'm sitting here looking at the powerpoints you gave me and i'm looking at like your heritage and i'm not remotely surprised by your heritage but it's still cool <laughs> it just says really white yeah like 99.9 percent european and like 97.3 northwestern you are so irish it's not even funny yeah it just says british and irish and then broadly northwestern european i was just like okay i love it oh my god glows in the dark that's that's my uh heritage which makes sense because you don't tan you don't no, tan so that I makes don't. sense i get that i turn to a lot i, I want to know what i do because like i tan like crazy you do. i know i'm Ita- i know i've got italian but yeah. that's it 
Yeah, that's what I'd vote for yours. Like I know a lot of your family is Italian, so. We actually talked about that. The, so ancestry comes up a lot in our multicultural class and counseling and kind oh, of the, cool. it's ridiculous that I have to use the word ramifications, but some of the ramifications that have come as a result of Ancestry.com, because for some of the people who come into counseling to discuss the results of those tests, mm-hmm. um, they anticipated having results like you have, mm-hmm. and those were not the results they got. <laughs> and so like one of my professors, for example, was talking about how he had someone who was very, um, see now I'm a counselor, so I'm trying to use very inclusive language, who really supported the Aryan Brotherhood's ideals. Oh, God. And boy, his Ancestry.com profile really had to make him, like, reevaluate his life. Well, I mean, good. He was not white. <laughs> he was not, right. You know, and it's, you know, so, so to me, I'm like, oh, good. He had the opportunity for personal growth. Because there you only go. hate yourself so much. <laughs> so, yeah, some personal growth. But, yeah, so this has actually come up a lot in counseling and kind of like, you know, what these um, – test can be like why mm-hmm. why people reach for these right like mm-hmm. what what are you looking to find out are you trying to track like your family's lineage are you trying to prove something like you know what do people use these for so it's mm-hmm. it came up a lot in my master's program um yeah, and it's crazy because i've never done them because they are a little difficult to gain access to if you're not in a very uh stable place financially they're not cheap mm-hmm. you know and so um, i actually have a couple questions about that like just with the so because these are around two hundred dollars, that 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 covers the DNA testing part, or does mm-hmm. this help fund things? Like, so yeah, I know twenty three and Me sometimes they'll have deals where you can get for like a hundred. Nice, but yeah, so it covers you know the physical testing as well, but also again the the benefit of any of these services is their reference population. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the service has to pay for as their upfront costs and then continually update is go around and find people who can document that they're native to a region and continue to update their reference population database. And so that's going to be a lot of their in-house costs, not just the physical you know, machines for running the DNA test, but going out, finding people genealogically documenting their heritage and then maintaining databases. Now for... 23andMe in particular, their database comes from publicly available data sets that were obtained through scientific consortiums like the Human Genome Diversity Project, HapMap, and the 1000 Genomes Project. So all of those are publicly available that they didn't maintain themselves, but they have kind of reanalyzed and interpreted and found like the individual single nucleotides that they're using as their test regions. They also have their private collections that they have developed and then maintain themselves. But for 23andMe, a lot of their DNA does come from their customers. So like the vast majority, like almost 11,000 out of their 13,000 reference data sets were actually customer data sets. So hmm. that's why like when you're asking, what does your money go towards? A lot of it is going to be putting your data into like the database that then gets compared to others. And for them, that's less for the ancestry part and more for the medical part. Because whenever you do 23andMe, you also fill out a lot of questionnaires of do you have anyone in your family who has breast cancer or are you left-handed or right-handed or do you have social anxiety or like there's a lot of things that they look at for traits and wellness and health problems and things like that. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more in just a minute. That's super cool, but okay. Oh, and uh, like you were saying, I, I didn't want to move past this about people who do not necessarily get the results that they were expecting. <laughs> For some people, that's super interesting. For some people, it's quite disappointing. And one of the most common, I think, is that 
people who were always told that, for example, they had Native American in their family tree or thought that they had a small amount of ancestry in, in a given population, that that was important to them. And then the ancestry test results come back and that's not what it has. Or it'll say one thing when you look at the test now and then it, it updates in a year and suddenly your percentages are different. And that confuses people. They're like, well, what I am didn't change. So how is the interpretation changing? Right. Both of those have to do with the maintenance of the database. With changes over time, that means that the company has continued to update their reference populations and reanalyzed your data and found that now with more information, turns out your profile is more similar to German than Irish, you know, something like that. They've reevaluated it based on having better information. Something that is, you know, risk anytime that you're working with a growing data set. And that's just a fact of, of science. Yeah, that's just a, a problem with science. It's like, yeah, as you get more information, it's going to change. And that's just life. But I do want to say, like, for people who maybe expected to see something like Native American and then didn't, I will maybe direct Katie's attention to slide 18, where I have copied down what the populations for that 23andMe has, and you can see the different classifications that they have, how many different profiles they have for the different groups. Say like they've got their reference profiles for European, they've got like 6,500 and for East Asian, they've got 2,300 and for African, they've got 2,200, things like that. I will point out that if you look at the middle column where it says East Asian and Native American, Native Americans down there towards the bottom of the list grouped with Northern Asian. And there aren't a lot of reference profiles in that group. And there also aren't a lot of options because obviously mm -hmm. indigenous people with more distinct family groups that would be maybe had a tribal society that maybe their profiles would be more genetically distinct from one another as a group. It's not really fair to group those all together and say, uh, Northern Asia and Native American, that's all the same kind of profile, right? Mm -hmm. So having that broad classification does make it difficult to isolate and say, this is what a particular group of indigenous people would have as their profile. And also there's not a lot of people as a reference population. You compare, you know, the people who can trace their ancestry to like, you know, what is modern day Italy is not the same number of people who can trace themselves back to an individual indigenous tribe. So I think it's just kind of a numbers game that makes it where there's not good reference populations to be able to say like, yeah, your profile does contain vestiges of being part of this particular ethnic group or cultural group. That's something people expect to see. And then maybe just the data doesn't exist to show that to people that like, yeah, you have this mm -hmm. reference population. So that is, that is something that I know disappoints a lot of people about their results. And I know there's always, a, um, so we're also not going to get too far into this. I was going to pull it up, but you know, this is something I might post on the social media. There are also very specific rules in American society. If you're going to um, claim any form of native American heritage, because the uh -huh. government pays, um, they don't pay a lot and they don't pay nearly what they should, but they pay. And because of that, you have to prove very specific lineage for a very specific amount of time and prove that you still have this ancestry, which is um, shameful and horrible. And, 
you can edit this out of the podcast if you want to, but I have very firm views on, uh, but you could share your views. That's cool. Kind of the way, well, just the, the, the way that we, the way that we treat the indigenous populations in North America are, um, shameful at best. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that, you know, the way that we split this up on the PowerPoint is Native American as one large, broad category and just kind yeah. of throw it off to the side. No part of me is surprised that um, that's the choice that was made there. Moving on, before yeah. I get it, before this becomes a social, a social justice podcast, <laughs> moving well, back I, to the science. But I mean, that is important when you're gathering data you need to mm-hmm. have very specific information and, and record your data, you know, classify it appropriately, whether that's publicly available bioinformatics data that I've used, say, for cancer populations, trying to say, like, if people don't record this as the right type of cancer, then I'm trying to do analysis after the fact and it's not there. Or I had another example that made that not sound like it was just out of the blue. Just basically anything where you're trying to establish a subgroup, if you don't record things with as much detail as possible and you have a large enough data pool, then that that information, you can't use it to its fullest extent. And so I know that just that uh, taking better care with, with those populations, if you want to be able to tell people whether or not they're members of that population or have a history with that, then, you know. You just need more more data. Oh, the other example yeah. I was going to say was with the forensics. If you know that you are evaluating profiles from people from isolated communities, such as indigenous populations, then you need to do a specific kind of statistics that maybe accounts for a less genetic diversity in that population because, you know, isolated groups don't have the ability for the genetic diversity and you don't want to do less conservative statistics because of that. So it's mm-hmm. like... Genetically, it does matter to know your reference population. See, looks, guys, they're science. <laughs> science supporting social justice aims. Love Yay. that. Love that. Here for that. <laughs> so, also, I just want to cut you off for two seconds and figure it out. I just figured out how to zoom in on your slides. Oh, because I'm smart. Nice. I j- and I'm so excited. I feel like such a winner. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you can do that now. <laughs> I am also glad I could do that because I was like, the words are so small. Aww. But now I figured it okay. out. All right. So moving on. Since I mentioned forensic testing, uh, this is a fun time to say when ancestry testing becomes forensic testing. Yes, I was waiting for this part. <laughs> so, yes, it was. A big, big deal a couple years ago when... Yes, it was. I know this one. Yeah, I mean, you could probably give the true crime half of the story pretty well. (laughs) Thank you, crime junkies. (laughs) It was a big deal for both good and bad in the public eye when the Golden State Killer was identified using not just forensic DNA testing, as has been the norm for police work, as it were, but actually incorporating ancestry type data. It's kind of strange because I've like kind of iterated to this point that you're looking at very different types of information. Either you're looking at a number of repeated words or you're looking at misspellings. 
So if you have databases that say one, you don't necessarily have the other in that same database. And so it's very hard to compare forensic data to ancestry data. And for a while, that was actually a source of comfort slash reassurance for people who wanted to do ancestry testing, but maybe weren't comfortable having their DNA in a forensic database because they're like, if I choose to commit a crime in the future, I don't want my DNA on profile or something. I don't know what the reasoning was. I don't care about where my DNA goes, obviously. But I don't either because I'm not planning on being a serial killer. <laughs> but like that's not in my my rule book. So I guess if you wanted that option. I guess that's true. <laughs> like that's always my thing when people are like, I don't want my DNA on file. I'm like, why not? Why? Yeah. No one's going to clone you. Right. Middle aged person who works a menial <laughs> job and has an average intelligence. So right. what are you planning on doing? <laughs> Yeah. The, the one thing I can see is now that medical testing is more prevalent, people were very worried about insurance getting a hold of your medical data, claiming you have pre-existing conditions that you didn't know anything about, and then denying you insurance for that reason. Say you're genetically I actually stand corrected. I did not think about that. Yeah. That was really the only thing. But I mean, with forensic profiling being a very different type of data, that wasn't really a concern. You know, because the 16 regions you look at for for forensic testing doesn't tell you any useful information about your potential health problems in the future. But in 2006, there was a paper published in Trends in Genetics by Pacer and Cutter called Integrating Patterns of Polymorphism at SNPs and STRs. So SNPs being the single nucleotide polymorphisms or misspellings, and then STRs being the short tandem repeats that we talked about with the forensics. So that was a paper that was uh, basically coming up with a statistical way of comparing the likelihood of short tandem repeats being associated with particular single nucleotide polymorphisms. So given the two sentences, his shirt is a very pale gray, gray with an A, or his shirt is a very, very pale gray, gray with an E. Essentially the same sentence. You know, they don't really have any different meaning to them. But mm -hmm. if you look at the big enough population, you can see a statistical likelihood of one very and gray with an A being found in the same person or two varies and gray with an E being found in the same person and then vice versa, you know, switch the other direction. Sure, and so yeah. statistically, you could kind of interpret if this person has a given str profile what is the what is their snp profile likely to be and vice versa so if someone has this ancestry profile statistically what is their forensic profile likely to be and so there are a few companies that do that basically just comparing these publicly available databases and doing these statistical comparisons Basically, they have to work from the SNPs type data and then uh, extrapolate the forensic data because the forensic data, I don't believe, is open to the public in any way. The CODIS database. Well, yeah. it'd be cool if it was, man. I could go on some deep dives if it was. I'm telling you right now, that would be some deep dive <laughs> business. One database that was involved in catching the Golden State Killer is GED Match, which was a public source DNA database that'll take health data, crime scene data, ancestry data, pretty much whatever they can get. And they're building up the statistical comparisons between SNPs and STRs. So that is how the Golden State Killer was actually identified, is that the investigators were able to convert 
the forensic profile to the kind of profile that Ancestry websites typically contain. Uh-huh. And then they uploaded it to that GED match that I mentioned. Back in 2018, that paid off and they identified the Golden State Killer. And then once they identified him through that database, you know, that's not enough to say it's a match or anything. Then they were able to get a direct sample from that individual and then test it, get a distinct forensic profile and then compare that the normal way. So they don't just, they didn't just match him statistically and say like, hey, you're probably a murderer, right? You probably killed a bunch of people. <laughs> but totally. They, they use that as a guide to then say, you know, it's worth getting a sample from that person. Yeah, I'm looking that up right now, actually. You know, I always love going down the rabbit hole. I don't know why I'm Googling this because I know the story, but I'm Googling it anyway. Yeah. I mean, you could Google you know, anything new about the, the method which was, with which he was caught because I was super surprised. Yeah. Because I was like, what yeah. do you mean they caught him through an ancestry site? That's not how that works. But I had not read the statistic uh, trends in genetics paper from 2006. And that was my problem. So uh-huh. um, see if you had read the paper. Yeah, I remember when that came out, people were like, this is going to blow the lid off so many things. Yeah. like they, And of course, Golden State's the big one you hear about. But there have mm-hmm. been some other instances yes. where you've used DNA of a family member. Like B- BTK comes to mind. Like one of the mm-hmm. reasons they were able to like link him to his daughter through some of her medical records. Uh, I mean, they already had him, but that was like, that helped verify. But like, I mean, this is not the only instance where this has happened. This is just the big case where this has happened. And through like ancestry DNA. Right, right. And at the time, like around, you know, 2018, when all this was getting really big, the journal Science, when they were discussing this, uh, Science is one of the really big biological journals, or really any science journals, obviously. (laughs) That's the name. That's um, the name. They postulated that within three years from that time, you know, 2018, the DNA of nearly every American of Northern European descent would be identifiable through relatives that were in databases and using statistics like GED Match does. So That's so cool. Yeah. That was their postulation, which I think we're probably approaching that deadline now. Not like it was a hard deadline or anything, but that was their assumption based on the progression of the technology. They're like, it's only going to be a few years before we can literally identify everyone of, of European descent using this method. So love it. Stop. So stop committing crime, guys. Yeah. Crime's over. Quit it. No more. We will find you. Can't be sneaky with crime anymore. Nope. <laughs> Got to do other things like online stuff. Yeah, I can't help you with online tracking of crime. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, I remember when that came out. I thought it was so cool. I was like, this is like the neatest thing ever. I was like super into it. Uh, but yeah, so that was the, I was I was hoping, I didn't know because I'm trying not to read ahead on the PowerPoint and like experience this with you. Like you're teaching it to me for the first time because I always do better. But I was really hoping Golden State would come up because I was like, that's what I know about Ancestry. That's what I know. You can track serial killers. Yes, that's a thing you can do now. Bring the forensics back. Love it. Okay, very cool. So the last type of DNA testing that I wanted to talk about is uh, medical testing. And that's something that a lot of people use these public DNA testing services for is to determine their risk factors for different diseases, conditions, and other genetic traits. Which I didn't even, I know this sounds ridiculous. I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah, I actually did. I mean, I guess... I guess objectively, I knew that was a thing. Like, I know Mm -hmm. that like, you know, there's a reason your doctor asks you, do you have like a history of breast cancer or ovarian Mm -hmm. cancer, which, you know, both are in my family. But um, I guess I never considered that like 
that's what people use 23andMe for. I was always just like, oh, you find out you're from Switzerland. Yeah. You know, but yeah. Okay. So that's super cool. I'm interested in this. Let's do this. So depending on the type of trait that they are telling you about, I would maybe give it different levels of grains of salt to take it with, basically. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of go through the different types of genetic traits and disease risks that that 23andMe in particular will tell you about. And I know there are other services, but I'm just using them as my example because they are very prevalent and you see a lot of ads for them. So it's it's the service that most people are likely to have encountered. Sure. So 23andMe, they look at four categories of health data. You know, they have their ancestry data and then they also have their health data. So the health data, they want to tell you health predisposition, carrier status, wellness, and then traits. Wellness being things like how much sleep you need, how you deal with food, your weight, things like that. And then traits as far as like appearance and senses. And, you know, those are pretty similar, but they make a distinction. (laughs) Okay. And so medical DNA testing This has actually been pretty common for many, many years. Well, sure. Yeah. There are known, you know, mutations that relate to specific diseases, such as sickle cell anemia is a single amino acid change. One very small change can make someone either a carrier or afflicted with sickle cell anemia. Also, Huntington's disease. Yeah, yeah, that's the one you always see in movies. Very clear genetic risk. Also, breast cancer. Not all types of breast cancer, but ones like there's a a mutation called BRCA that a lot of people have heard about. And if you have a mutation in that BRCA gene, you are highly likely to develop breast cancer. Yeah, I had two friends that had to get double mastectomies because they were to detect that gene. I mean, they got to pick their new set, which I thought was so <laughs> cool. And they, well, I, I shouldn't say I thought that was so cool. They had very positive outlooks on it. So that part to me was cool because they were really excited. And actually one of them sat on my bed and we picked out what we wanted her brand new breast to look like. And I was like, cool. You know, your approach to this is, is pretty great. Yeah. She was also a stripper. So, you know, that was helpful. She was like, this is getting paid for. I was like, yeah, girl, do it. Yeah, girl. Nice. So very cool. So that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I I knew those you could test for fairly Mm -hmm. easily. And those are also, so correct me if I'm wrong, those are also diseases that are specific to like certain populations too, right? They're a lot more common, uh, yes, in specific populations. For example, sickle cell anemia is more common in people of African descent, but that is because that gene is genetically Technically, being a carrier for sickle cell, not not obviously, you know, having two copies of the gene and being symptomatic for sickle cell, but being a carrier is actually advantageous for people living in sections of Africa because it makes you resistant to malaria. Really? Yes. So the malaria oh. parasite, uh, when it infects your blood cells, it causes... I think a pH change, it causes a change that if you have sickle cell, those cells will, you know, sickle and deform when they are infected with the parasite. And so they get basically screened out by your spleen and the parasite doesn't attach. Because one of the things that the parasite does is, is it causes these little like proteins to come out of your red blood cells so that they can attach to the side of like your, your blood vessels. And that's where the parasite like replicates and then it can affect the rest of your body. But 
having sickle cell makes your cells really sensitive to the physiological changes that result from infection by the parasite. And so basically they will change shape and get filtered out by your spleen. And that way the infection can't spread throughout your body. Well, that's super cool. And I didn't know that. So thank you for telling me that. So being a carrier for sickle cell is really good. Yes, being a carrier is. And yeah, because of that, you can have you know some problems. You can still have some anemia symptoms because if there is any, you know, sickling of your blood cells, they will get filtered out. Um, but you have enough non-sickled, normal shaped blood vessel, blood cells, sorry, that um, you're generally fine. But if you're homozygous, meaning you have two copies of the sickle cell gene, then it's really bad. You tend to become anemic because your cells will, um, lots of them will adopt that sickle shape and then get filtered out. And then you are anemic because you're short on blood vessels because they've all gotten, you know, caught in your spleen. Yes. Yeah. yeah which is not good. Yes, no. not good. I mean, yeah. it, it's supposed to be good for you. It's supposed to protect you from malaria, but... That's not the way that always works. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't work out. It backfired. Gotcha. But that is, that is why, like you were saying, these genetic traits that have health consequences can be more prevalent in different populations because it is more, more or less advantageous for those different populations. And so that gene tends to, you know, if it promotes survival in that region then it's more likely to get passed on from people who have lived to reproductive age in that region. Okay. Gotcha. Makes sense. Also, other really basic health tests that have been done for a long time have been those not looking at specific genes, but looking more broadly at chromosome duplications. So that can be like Down syndrome. It's also called trisomy 21, meaning it ha- you have three copies of one of your chromosomes, the 21st chromosome. And so that causes the condition of Down syndrome. You can also have things like Kleinfelter syndrome or other uh, different numbers of your sex chromosomes, you know, being XXY. Yes, or I didn't XO, know that. Yes. Like that. So those are having a non-standard distribution of the sex chromosomes whenever the like eggs and sperm are formed. And so whenever those join back together, you end up with an odd number of chromosomes. Within the last couple years, 23andMe has been approved to give medical advice per the FDA. So for a long time, when 23andMe was first founded, they started off trying to give medical advice and the FDA was like, you can't do that. You don't necessarily know what you're doing. But after a good amount of, of study, the FDA did approve 23andMe to not ex- necessarily give medical advice to the extent that they can prescribe you anything, but that they are deemed trustworthy enough that you can maybe take your report to your doctor and say, like, I want confirmatory testing and maybe we can address this and get rid of my breasts because they put me at risk, something like that. Mm-hmm. Got you. Okay. Very interesting. Just kind of walking through the different things that 23andMe looks at, again, um, just kind of as the last thing we're doing, the health predispositions that they tell you about are things that like you yourself are likely to develop or not. Wow. Okay. And that that's different from when they look at carrier status, which is whether or not you or your progeny are likely to develop a condition, whether or not, like if you marry someone who is also has a carrier status for that, if you're likely to give this to your, to your children or whatever. So the health predisposition, you know, what you are likely to develop yourself, they look at age-related macular degeneration, celiac disease, Parkinson's disease, and a lot of Parkinsonism is sporadic, meaning it just develops on its own or in result to environmental exposure. But there are 
familial Parkinson disease genes that, you know, that if you have a mutation in this, you know, it predisposes you to Parkinson's. So they look for that one. Uh, type two diabetes has some genetic markers. So they, they look at those and those are fairly well established for all of those. They have good research behind them as support for whether or not this mutation actually means you're at risk for that disease. Looking at carrier status, they, they look at a, a wider range of diseases. These also generally have some good medical backing to say like these mutations are associated with these diseases, but it's maybe not as causative. Like you have this mutation, so you are getting this disease. It's more like you're more at risk for the disease or you're more at risk for passing on the disease. It's, it's less like one-to-one, this mutation mm-hmm. means this disease. Right. Or that you can pass it on because sickle cell is on that list. And obviously, if you have a mutation that turns like a leucine to a valine in this one particular protein in your blood cells, then you have sickle cell. It's very straightforward. But these are also hereditary conditions that you can pass on or be a carrier for. Like we said, being a carrier for sickle cell, not that bad. I mean, I shouldn't say whether or not it's bad not being someone who is a carrier. Right. There's probably symptoms associated with it, but it's not as bad there as are being reasons. homozygous. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And it's not as bad as having full-blown sickle cell. Yes. So that looks again at a wide array of conditions such as cystic fibrosis, some glycogen storage, which is like how your body stores sugar sometimes. Oh, uh, phenylketonuria, which is a condition that they test like newborn babies for because it, it has to do with what kind of proteins you can digest. And if you can't break down proteins, then you kind of build up some toxic byproducts in your body and it can be very, very bad. Tay-Sachs disease. I don't know what Usher syndrome is. I'm assuming it's not the fun kind. Yeah. No. (laughs) But Tay-Sachs, I know Tay-Sachs and I know that's terrible. Yeah. Hyperinsulinism, things like that. Like, so there is a maple syrup urine disease. Yeah. I think that's, um, I'm sorry. I'm Googling that. Continue talking. I think it's like a diabetic, a diabetes related condition. I think. Because you like are secreting, you don't process your sugar and it just kind of all comes out in your urine. Yep. Your body cannot process certain amino acids. Oh, okay. So it's a amino acids, not sugars. Okay. Urine, sweat, and earwax that smells like maple syrup. You know? That's interesting. Those don't sound like the worst thing. <laughs> well, apparently you die within a few months. So not good. Yeah. I was like, it probably is a lot worse than it sounds. So it's like yeah, having that, yeah, sweat that smells like maple syrup. I'm like, that's awesome. A lot, most people that just smell like onions, terrible. you know? Yeah. But. Apparently you can treat it, but yeah. Okay. Gotcha. It's final, kind of probably like phenylketonuria where it's just like you can control it with your diet. Uh-huh. Let's see. That's interesting. Okay. That one was just one of the ones that I was looking at your list. I was like, what is that? That is yeah, that, interesting. That one stands out. Yeah. But okay. also things, you know, hearing loss and deafness, predisposition, things like that. So there's there's a, quite a list, but these are also fairly well researched. Oh, sorry. The next slide was my results, actually. Really? This is you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have two risk genes for age-related macular degeneration. I have two variants for hemochromatosis and one variant for limb girdle muscular dystrophy type two. And that's just being a carrier because I only have the one variant. I have these mutations, but I don't know if they, if they stack basically, because like these variants are at different places. So like the one that's listed at the top, it says Y402H. And that means that in the CFH gene, at the 402nd amino acid is supposed to be a tyrosine. 
And instead I have a histidine. So that's what that, like how that's written out. So for the ARMS2 gene at the 69th position, I'm supposed to have an alanine. Instead, I have a serine. And those are the amino acid names, not the nucleotide names, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the change in nucleotide results in a change in amino acid and therefore potentially a change in the function of the protein. So that's what I'm at risk for, personally. But what's important about these types of data is when 23andMe in particular gives you this information, they will tell you where they're getting the basis for drawing these conclusions. Like on slide 27, it says this gene, SGCA, amino acid number 77, it's supposed to be an arginine, I have a cysteine. And it says the reason that this happened is because I'm supposed to have, like a C is the normal copy, but I got a T, you know, so that's the nucleotide change. And that change in nucleotide from C to a T makes the encoded amino acid be a cysteine, not an arginine. So they, they walk you through very well, like what genetic change causes this amino acid change that will change the function of your protein. And then they will also give you references that says this change from a C to a T results in an abnormal protein that doesn't localize properly within your cells. Here's how common it is in different populations. And then they'll give you references. And the references are actually an important thing to pay attention to. Even if you don't have the practice of reading scientific literature, not many people want to, it's important to at least kind of know where they're getting this information from and how much support they have. So if they have like four different references that look like they're from actual journals and not just population study of 23andMe members, you know, like that's not necessarily the best source because, I mean, it's how they gather their data, their original data, and they're working on it, but sometimes it's not as well hammered out as maybe they present it. And that's that's really exemplified in the wellness and traits part of this. And that's the last thing we're going to talk about is the types of things that maybe these genetic tests tell you that may not have the best support. And so the last thing I'm going to say is like to really evaluate your findings, your results, and kind of think about where they're coming from and what that actually means for you. Which I feel is people, something people actively have a hard time doing online is looking yes. at source work and where they're getting their information from. Yeah. So thank you for that, Erica. I do appreciate this PSA. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's why that's what I want to end with, because it is uh, something that not enough people maybe pay attention to. So when you look at the traits and, and the wellness data that 23andMe gives you, they give you quite a, a range. So for wellness traits, they'll tell you, you know, whether or not you tend to flush in your face when you drink alcohol, uh, whether or not you are predisposed to being heavier or thinner, lactose intolerance, things like that. Earwax type. <laughs> what? We'll, we'll get to, to the traits in just a second. I'm so sorry. The- I'm just distracted. Okay. So let's go back That's to cool. wellness. I got ahead of myself. <laughs> so for wellness, those traits are, again, slightly more well-documented. It's like well-known that the alcohol flush reaction is more common in specific populations, um, such as Eastern Asian populations. That is a mutation in one of the genes that's like, I think it's either alcohol dehydrogenase or the next one in the pathway. And it makes it where you don't completely convert any ethanol that you drink. You're supposed to convert the ethanol to like 
acid aldehyde and then into an aldehyde that you can then process and secrete. And one of those proteins isn't as effective. And so the the toxic byproduct of the ethanol stays in your system longer. And that's why you tend to flush. And so that mutation is more common in specific populations. And so like that's a fairly well-documented mutation. It's wellness related. Okay. Lactose intolerance is more common in specific populations as well. Populations where drinking milk as an adult is uh, something that happens a lot. You know, lactose may be more well tolerated. Lactose intolerance is actually very common because... I know, I have it. Oh, that's such a bummer. I know, I can't have cheese. I've told you that. I can't have cheese. It makes me sicker than a dog. I know. It's the worst. It's so sad. No ice cream for me. No cheese. And I, I have severe reactions to it too, like severe lactose intolerance. I know. So sadness. Okay. So that's a big one. It was at one of your bridal showers where we kind of got drunk and then we ordered pizza and you were sober enough to remember that you needed to order something else. But the next day you woke up and saw the, the half eaten pizza box. You're like, oh my God, did I eat pizza last night? And you were like very concerned. Um, that sounds correct. It's like, oh, <laughs> I, have made, I have made a terrible choice. We're like, no, no, you didn't. You didn't eat pizza. Don't worry. You remember. You were smart. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, yeah, in a lot of populations, you just, you don't retain the ability to process lactose as an adult. And that's fine because, like, not any other mammals drink milk as an adult. So, like. Right. But then you get to the traits. And the traits I are love this. This is great. hit or miss. Whether or not you're likely to have stretch marks, whether or not you prefer, whether you prefer sweet versus salty snacks, whether, I mean, hair, that seems right. You know, how likely your hair is to bleach in the, in the sun and how thick your follicles are and how thick your hair is. All right. Maybe I can see that. Sure. How likely you are to get bitten by mosquitoes. Mm. Ooh, that's Brett, man. I can tell you right now. He's got a gene that makes him delicious. Whether or not you were probably born with hair as a baby. The ability to match musical pitch. So the genetic predisposition to be tone deaf or not. Wow. Okay. Asparagus odor detection. Yeah. Are there people who can't smell asparagus? Apparently. (laughs) Wow. Okay. But take that with cilantro taste aversion. So that's actually... Cilantro tastes like soap. To you it does because... Go to the next slide. Okay. So cilantro aversion is one of these random sounding traits that actually is fairly well genetically documented. There are genetic markers that are near your genes that encode like your olfactory receptors. And if you have these mutations, you're more likely to think that cilantro tastes like soap. And if you don't, then you like cilantro and it tastes just like a normal herb. It tastes like soap. So Katie has this mutation, apparently. I have the mutation. Cilantro tastes like soap. I can taste it in anything. If you put cilantro in any Mexican food, I pull it out. I'm like, why would I want a soap burrito? So there's these two regions. It shows you on the, on the page that I've, I've mm-hmm. uh, put here. I'm this looking is at what it. you see when you go through 23andMe and you click on cilantro version. They'll bring this up and it says if you have an A at this location or a C at this location, these are the odds that it, you will hate cilantro. And they're not just being random. You can look at the references under read more. And there's a 2012 paper set titled a genetic variant near olfactory receptor genes influences cilantro preference. And so like that's actually documented. There's like actual research that people did through genetic studies. 
But compare that to, say, another trait that they evaluate, such as motion sickness. So if you go to the next slide, it says you're predisposed to motion sickness. And it says that with the exact same certainty as you're likely to think cilantro tastes like soap. But when you click on it, it's not based on a research paper that has identified specific mutations. It's based on looking at all of the people who've ever taken 23andMe and saying, we've identified 413 different genes that are associated with motion sickness. And 80% of people get motion sickness. So you probably get motion sickness, right? Wow. Okay. So that's like, that's what you got to look out for. And if you look at their references, their first reference is they're 23 and me just include encoding complex phenotype prevalence, you know, just looking at gotcha. different complex markers. Now there is a paper in human molecular genetics. that's also cited there genetic variants associated with motion sickness based on inner ear development. And that's a 2015 paper, but the statistics that say, you know, we've identified over 400 genes and eh, 80% of people get motion sickness anyway. That's, I feel like that shouldn't be presented with the same emphasis as we identified two specific mutations in olfactory receptors that say, if you have an A right here, you don't like cilantro. Like, I understand not all traits are that simple. Not all traits are determined by a single gene, obviously. But maybe it shouldn't be like, I am super sure about this. Right. There's Some of them are yeah. fairly straightforward and some of them are like, eh, you probably get motion sick, right? So that's why I want to say, like, when you get these results, don't just look at the list and say, this is everything about me. Like it's a horoscope or something, you know, so this is who I am. Like actually look at it and click on the, how we got your results section and see like, what kind of data did they actually use to get this? Did, is it a documented scientific study that someone did, or is it just a population? I mean, I know those aren't like super difference. It's all, it's all statistics when it comes down to it, but just kind of, evaluate you know i've said it before i feel like for a higher level education like those higher level degrees half of what you learn is how to interpret research mm -hmm. okay now i have to do this i'm super interested i want to do the thing yeah it's pretty cool i bet they'll tell you that you hate cilantro oh, <laughs> and then i'm lactose intolerant yep both of those things are going to come up yep i'm a mind reader i know that one already <laughs> and they're continually updating this. So I get surveys from 23andMe all the time asking me to help them with their research, being like, are you right-handed or left-handed? Do you get anxious in crowds? Do you like to wake up early or stay up late? You know, we figured that one out tonight uh, to this morning. Yeah. I, was I am like, such a morning I don't person. don't want to get up. Yeah. I was up at six, just naturally. It's like, good morning. Hello world. You crazy. I love sleep. Yeah, but I'm also in bed by like 8 30, 9 o'clock. Like I'm like <laughs> I start going down for the count. You've had me at your house, like about 8 30, 9 o'clock. I'm like, good night. I made dinner like on the morning last night. I would die from heartburn. When I tell you my body would rebel, I usually don't eat <laughs> after like 4 30 or 5 o'clock because my body's like, go ahead, eat something, then lay down. Watch what happens. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about genetics? I can tell you right now. We can see the future. <laughs> it's you will be miserable. <laughs> You will be miserable. I dare you. Yeah. So yeah, so super cool. This was awesome. Now I'm definitely going to go get my 23andMe. That sounds great. Yep. And like I said, I'm not trying to plug them as a service because I like love them or anything. But like I said, the point of any of these services and choosing one over the other is their database. And they do have a pretty big database as far as different populations go and their medical testing because they've been taking a lot of surveys and using a lot of publicly available data. So Love that. 
they do have the the data to tell you things. Just kind of, uh, you know, just use some common sense when when looking at the results. I mean, you say that. I know. Common sense isn't actually that common. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it. Do you have anything else for us today with science? Not science. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that's it. No. Wraps up my, uh, my DNA presentation. I learned so much about DNA. Like I said, the extent of my knowledge about DNA has probably been like CSI and like Maury. But I feel like that's a lot of people, right? Like you're like, oh, I'm made up of DNA, all these things, but you don't actually like know the science behind it. So that's super cool. Right. And that's why I like this talk because, you know, these are things that people hear, but you don't know what it means, you know? Nope. So I feel that way about most things in my life. I think we've had that discussion. I hear it. No idea what it means. And I'm just like, you sound like you know what you're talking about. I'm moving on. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm going to take your word on this. Yep. I'm going to believe you. So what's your mental health minute this week? My mental health minute this week is it may be really hard and upsetting, but sometimes you just have to cut toxic people out of your life if they are causing you a lot of stress. I understand, like, it's really important to be there for people who may not have, you know, a lot of friends or another support system. But at some point, you have to start thinking about yourself and the amount of stress and just drain that those people are putting on your life. And sometimes uh, it sucks, but you just have to stand your ground and set boundaries. And then don't let toxic people push your boundaries. It, it's hard I mean, when you want to be a nice guy and you want to be there for people and it's a really hard thing for me to learn in particular, but sometimes you just got to step back and just take care of yourself. So that's my very straightforward mental health minute for this. Week. Hey, and you know, I, you know, I love that. I love the whole, you know, you can be there and take care of people until it starts coming at the cost of your mental health. Yeah. You know, when it starts costing you pieces Mm -hmm. of yourself to do that, then it's no longer a healthy situation. And taking a step back and establishing boundaries is literally the best thing you can do. And if if someone isn't respecting those boundaries, then it's a good, it's a sign that you were probably right to put them up. Absolutely. That's your indicator, right? That's your litmus test. If someone refuses to set your boundaries or tries to make it your fault, tells you everything you need to know. Absolutely. hundred percent. So I love that. That's a really good one. Mine is um, a little more uh, just (laughs) out there. Mine is um, I've been struggling with control issues this week because we're trying to sell a house. We're trying to buy a house. I'm living in this little rented house. It's 4th of July. So my dog is losing it. And I'm working on meditating, living in the moment. And you know what? Rolling with it. And that is a difficult concept for me. Just letting things happen relaxing and understanding that I don't have control over everything in my life. It is going well. Okay. I'm having good days and bad days with that. But right now we're having a good day because I got to see you. This is fine. And I'm learning that if things don't happen the way that I have them planned in my perfectly color-coded organized, organized calendar, it's okay. <laughs> we'll just wipe that part out and write it in for the next day. And it, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. So yeah, so my mental health minute this week is kind of just learning to roll with it. So boundaries and rolling with it. I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm sorry I was your roll with it for yesterday. I woke up with like a wild headache and did not want to record. <laughs> when I tell you the number of roll with it I've had this week, yours didn't even register. 
<laughs> didn't even register the number of roll with it. I was like, that's fun. Don't care. I was like, I have enough roll with it things. Yeah. Yours did not register. But yeah, we're rolling with it this week, man. We're just steamrolling ahead. And you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, you know what? I keep LaCroix in my fridge and we're going to be fine. I think I've reached, reached the age where I just need to like keep a bottle of ibuprofen by my on my nightstand and be just like, I'm just going to wake up with a headache. So let's just oh, go ahead God. and put this here. <laughs> oh, when your body Why starts yelling old? at you and you're like, I gave you 64 ounces of water. I gave you eight hours of sleep. I ate a salad yesterday. What do you want? What do you want? What, what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> Tell me what you want. Why are you angry? I work out. I use skincare. Like, you right. know. So I'm like, I'm not supposed to go outside because I'm like getting forehead spots, but you know. <laughs> like literally gave you a skin mask yesterday. Okay. So like, what do you want from me? Why are you so angry? <laughs> yep. Okay. Priorities, body. Priorities. Yes. No, I totally feel that. Just the whole rude. idea where you wake up and you're like, what is happening? I was right. so nice to you yesterday. And it's like, yeah, but remember when you were 16 and you jumped out the side of that car? Yeah, we're going to punish you for it today. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going to re- remember that and relive that. Told you I was <laughs> going to make you call it in. Told you I was going to call it in. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, before Eric and I completely roll and spend another hour and a half talking to each other, I wanted to remind everybody that if you have questions, concerns, or ideas for our next podcast, you can hit us up at our Gmail at southernsciencechicks at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to us on Facebook. You have to search Southern Science Chicks, but our name is Southern Science. I know that's been confusing to some people in the past. Again, the facebook.com slash Southern Science is taken by a barbecue restaurant. So (laughs) look us up under Southern Science Chicks. You'll be able to find us. Um, Hey! Also, we are Southern Science Chicks on Instagram, and I need to do better work with the Instagram because I posted uh, DNA stuff last week to the Facebook and not to the Instagram because I'm bad at social media. So I'm working on it. (laughs) You know what? You're not bad at social media. You just have other things in your life that take priority. Yeah, mostly bad. There you go. Let's look at it that way. All right. We will see y'all two weeks from now because we are... What's up? Oh, uh, we need to do some shout outs. Shout outs. This is new. I love this. (laughs) Well, I uh, keep forgetting to shout out my grandpa for giving us our theme music, our intro and outro music. Oh, yeah. So cool. Is uh, from his song, Mary Louise and Mary Lou. It's awesome. And did you want to do a shout out to our first gift from a listener? Oh, absolutely. I do. So we got our first gift from a listener. Erica's cousin has painted me this incredible paint i'm so excited to get it i'm gonna hang it in my walk-in closet and i'm gonna post pictures of my walk-in closet because i like it and i want y'all to see it um it's a beignets and magnolia it's a new orleans themed gift and she's gifting it to us and i'm so excited about it it's gonna be awesome it's going to my closet and i guess maybe we can like share custody of it yeah i'll, I'll I mean, be able to look at it when i come visit but yeah so that's from my cousin monica <laughs> and thank you monica i'm really glad you're enjoying it listening and shout out to aunt karen also um <laughs> We had a lot of fun. I know Katie really liked meeting you at graduation. So oh my God. it was so much fun. Yeah, it was so cool to meet a fan. And then also like, you know, I have like zero artistic skills. So when she sent me the mock-ups for the painting, I was like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, and like beignets, <laughs> beignets, Florida leaves and magnolias. I mean, you can't go wrong there. Please can't yes. go wrong there. Love it. So, yeah. So that's what I wanted to remember to say. Thanks. Is that it? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Okay. Like Katie was in the process of saying when I interrupted, we'll see y'all again in two weeks.
Yes, and love the shout out, and we'll definitely. I love the shout out thing. Let's do more shout outs. Send me more gifts so I can do more shout outs. <laughs> yes, exactly. do it. Send me more gifts. All right, we will see you on two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Do you ever tell the friends we knew that you remember me? Recording! Holla! Yeah, can I actually tell you, speaking of drinks, that Mm -hmm. Starbucks, you know I only drink black coffee. Yes. Don't put anything in my coffee. Don't come in with a sweetener, cream, any of that mess. I drink black coffee, black iced coffee. Mm-hmm. But I have recently found that if you put powdered cinnamon in black coffee, game changer. Huge game changer. It tastes like Christmas, and I don't even care that it's July. <laughs> I'm like, you taste delicious. Wow. Full happiness. <laughs> so what did you just drink? That was not coffee. Oh, no. It was a like a half of a leftover LaCroix half to mi- mixed with half of a leftover lemon, lime and bitters soda. So. Ah, there you go. Recycle the random. sodas in your fridge. Yeah. I found a new one that's like popular up North called polar and they okay. have like LaCroix that are like blueberry lemonade flavored and stuff. And I haven't tried one yet. Cause like, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I love LaCroix same as anybody else does, but mm-hmm. the flavors are more suggestions than flavors. Right. So I'm very interested as to how blueberry lemonade. I the LaCroix that I recently got, like I only got them because like they actually have flavor. It's kind of weird. They're like cherry limeade or whatever and it's it's more than just a you know, a cherry burped in the next room. Coconut. You know? Coconut. <laughs> yeah, where you just hear the word. Yeah. I had someone tell me once that coconut LaCroix, my yoga instructor actually was like coconut LaCroix tastes like someone's putting on sunscreen in the next room. <laughs> and I was like, that's very fair. But yeah, no, like I'm, I'm a sparkling soda sort of person. Like I love that, you know, like I like some, some happiness to my water, but for me, it's more about the carbonation because I think the flavor is a joke, but I got these <laughs> and we're going to see how this happens. I don't know. I'm, I'm willing to try it. All right. I'm nice. willing to go there. At some point I would like to do a podcast on how you do that. How you like make how you something smell things? like a flavor. Yeah. Well, no, how, oh. I don't want to carbonate. I have a soda stream, so mm. I know how you carbonate. I just shove carbonation into bottles. But how do you make something smell like something and then it tastes like sadness? Are we interested <laughs> like, in that at some point? Why, do, why the odor molecules don't translate to taste molecules? There we go. That's the more sciencey way to say that. Yes, that, that. Exactly that. The why do you lie receptor... to me flavor receptors? <laughs> right. I mean, I think we've talked about like odorant receptors before and... We have. I don't know if we've talked about taste receptors though. So we have fine. not. And not about sadness either. And about the myth that is the taste bud chart. Oh, we did anyway okay yeah we did we, we talked about that that's the only thing we talked about is the myth oh, that is okay. the tape foot chart you don't want to tell me that and it ruined my like kindergarten experience just so you know yeah because i like, was convinced i could taste things on the tip of my tongue and they were different flavors <laughs> it's like you can taste things with the tip of your tongue just also the rest of your tongue <laughs> also the rest of your tongue works also the rest yes. of it's fine <laughs> <laughs>